Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church Podcast. This is the seventh in our series in James, and it is called, Who Are You to Judge? We hope you enjoy. Maybe a personal question. You're, you can uh, definitely not answer the question if you don't want to, but uh, anybody ever tried to lose weight? Anybody ever tried to lose weight? It's funny how many people, some people are like, what does that mean? And we, we knew you would say, what does that mean, even before we asked the question, because you tell you've never had to worry about it. But uh, some of us, many of us, have tried to lose weight, weight in the past. And um, anytime you read the diet books, it's kind of funny. They always say, say, this isn't a diet. This is a healthy living plan or something like that. Have you all seen that before? It's, it's like that they can talk you into believing you're not on a diet. By, by change. You can tell the gullible among us because they're always like, oh, you're on a diet? No, no, I'm on a healthy living plan. Instead. Yeah, we do have the uh, representative here for healthy eating plans in the world. So um, I, I used to, uh, every single time I've wanted to lose weight, I'll read a new book and uh, read a new idea and see if it works. And of course, they always started out as, this isn't a diet, this is a healthy eating plan. But, um, but uh, the, the diet thing, of course, is, is important. When we're on a diet, what do we do every morning? We get, on the, we get on the scale to see how we're doing. I'm on a diet right now. I fast three times a day. Um, I fast between breakfast and lunch, between lunch and dinner, and between dinner. <laughs> Other than that, I eat whatever I want to. It's not working well. My weight is up and my cholesterol's work, but I'm going to be persistent. See, But we get on the scale every morning to see how we're doing, to test if we're, if we're losing weight very well. Uh, that's, that's what we do. Were we down a little bit? Are we up a little bit? Uh, when I was growing up, um, uh, not when I was growing up, when, when we were married, we lived in an apartment for a little while above my parents' house. It had a, a separate entry apartment that we lived in for a while, um, and I'm not afraid to admit it. But uh, we lived in that apartment, and uh, upstairs we had a scale that would say one thing, and downstairs my mother had a scale that would say another thing. So if I got on the scale upstairs, it said I was 200 pounds. If I got on the scale downstairs, it said I was 190 so I could lose 10 pounds by walking down the stairs, which is pretty good. But that test of my weight might change the way I, I treat my behaviors, right? The test determines the treatment. So if I really believe that, if I was like, well, maybe I should just, instead of, instead of actually changing my healthy eating plan um, and exercising more and eating more correctly, I could just change the test. So I had two choices then. I could either change the treatment or I could change the test. I could say, well... I'm 200 pounds upstairs. I don't really like the sound of that. I'd much rather lose 10 pounds. So let me do a different test and get a different answer. And that would affect how I ate, right? Because if I thought I'd lost 10 pounds, even though I hadn't lost 10 pounds, it actually would affect how I treated my uh, need to lose weight. Uh, we do kind of, uh, we, we do a lot of tests in life. We test our health. Uh, we test our finances. Uh, we, get, we do a test on our car to see what needs to be done with our car. Uh, sometimes we do tests at work and we do valuations at work to see how well we're doing. Uh, we do tests to help us determine what behaviors need to change so that we have success in life, right? Sometimes I think as believers or as people in our marriages and our parenting and all the different areas of life that we want to be successful, sometimes we might wish we just had a different test. Uh, maybe it feels like we're not doing so well on the test we have, so we wish we had a different test that we could change it to. Uh, all these different things we test uh, represent our ability, our desire to be better, to give the right treatment to grow and to, to improve. Uh, one other thing we use, for instance, uh, not only impacts how we treat ourselves, but how we treat others. If you were using a thermometer uh, to test the temperature of your child while they were sick, if that test was inaccurate, it would change how you treated your child, right? So if you uh, put the thermometer in and it was 198 degrees, but that was inaccurate, you might not give the child the treatment they need. Or if it was 104 degrees and that was inaccurate, really they were 98.6, then you might give them more treatment than they need. So the test always determines the treatment. 
James 4 is going to help us understand uh, how this impacts how we live out the gospel in our lives, this idea of getting the test right so that the treatment is right. So that when we, when we assess and, um, and qualify our lives as believers, that we, through the Spirit of God, can really be impacted uh, by what He wants to do and how He wants to change our lives. And not just go by um, um, abstract ideas or subjective, subjective ideas. So James chapter 4, remember where we left off last week. Uh, Will's taught us through the first part of chapter 4. It ended up in verses 7 through 10. Uh, and I'll just summarize what was said or what, what the text says is it basically says humble yourself. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, it says submit to God. And at the end of that paragraph, chapter, I mean, sorry, chapter 4, verse 7, and at the end of that paragraph, chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, which is a way to say the same thing twice. Submit, humble yourselves before the Lord. And that's the big idea, the big command that James ends us with that we talked about last week. The, the ultimate answer to how do, we, how do we have unity is through humility. Humility leads to unity, unity is a result of humility. And then he goes on, and what we're going to read today, to start applying what does it look like when we live lives of humility, lives of submission to Jesus, lives that are unconcerned to be glorified and, and please ourselves, glorify ourselves, praise ourselves, honor ourselves. What does that look like? So he's going to give us some answers to that in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, Don't criticize one another, brothers. The word criticize could mean uh, literally the Greek word is down and talk. So talk down about someone, cut them down. Um, trash talk. I like the way uh, some of the translations may say it's uh, talk negatively about one another. So however you want to translate that, it's the idea of criticize or, um, or badmouth someone. That's the message translation. Badmouth. The, the, sometimes the message gets a bad route for being a, a paraphrase, not a translation, and that's, that's correct, but it actually translates this phrase even better than any of the other English translations I saw. It says, don't badmouth each other. And that's as close to the Greek as you could actually get. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. I don't know about you, but that kind of gave me pause when I first read it. Well, what does that mean? He who criticizes or badmouths his brother and judges his brother, what they're really doing is criticizing the law and judging the law. What in the world? We'll come back to that in a second. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who do you think you are? I love that it says that. So who do you think you are is the way it ends this text. Uh, I've said that. I've heard that. Who do you think you are? When somebody tells you advice that you didn't want to hear, who do you think you are? I didn't know that they got that from James, from the Spirit of God. Who do you think you are? A couple of things for us to think about as we understand what this text is saying. I want us to go through some of the questions that might be obvious in our minds and then, uh, and then uh, summarize it into a basic idea and then we'll make some application around it. So the first thing that might come to your mind is what does it mean to judge? This passage talks often about judging. It says if you're, if you're bad-mouthing your brother, somebody that's another believer is where it starts, right? I do want to point out before I get too far into this, it starts with applying this to if you're bad-mouthing your, your brother, which would speak to other believers, and then it, it might be tempting to go, that's all it's talking about, but it extends it at the end all the way to our neighbor. And then Bible neighbor is shorthand for mission field. For the people that you work around, the people that you live around, the people that you're in relationships with, it's the people in your community. And of course, community in 2016 in the United States may mean something slightly different based on our ability to be on social media, based on our ability to travel, uh, the technology that we have. Our community actually extends much further today in 2016 than it did 
uh, when this was written, right? Your community in this time might have been the four or five families that lived around you, which makes more sense about neighbor. But neighbor actually extends to our entire community. So as we think about this text, don't just think about the believers within this room, though that's definitely where it should start, or even other believers generally, or even your own family. All of those are applicable. But think about the community that you live in. Think about the things that we might would say over the phone or that we might say publicly or say in an advertisement or say on a bumper sticker or say on a t-shirt or say on our Twitter or our Facebook account. It applies to all of those aspects because it is speaking to how we talk and communicate and affect other people um, as it relates to the belief we have in the gospel. So that's the, that's the big picture of what's going on here. It talks about the fact that if we badmouth our brother, the reason we do that, the reason we would do that is because of what's in our heart. Um, it's saying that what you say is what you believe, what you feel. Out of the what? Out of the heart proceeds the, the, the words, right? I said that really wrong. Out of, the, out of the mouth proceeds the issues of the heart. That's the way I should have said it, right? Um, so that's what we learn in the Bible over and over and over. What we say is reflective of what we believe, what we want, what we think. And that's what James is teaching us is the reason that we are critical or bad-mouthing other brothers and sisters in, in Christ or even other people in the community, speaking negatively, being critical in our words, is because we're judgmental in our heart. But what does it mean to be judgmental? The word judgment in the Greek actually can have four different, uh, multiple different meanings. And I want to go through them. Now, normally I wouldn't go through this, this much into the, the depth of what a word would mean, but I think it would be very helpful for all of us to really think deeply about what it means to judge. Will and I were reflecting on this text together, and we, we were reminded, uh, he reminded me of how often when we go through these kind of texts, um, it can cause us to be a bit confused about, well, where does church discipline play a part, or can we even call sin, sin anymore? So we want to talk through that idea a little bit in the text, and then during discussion time, maybe we can go a little bit deeper. But I think it will help us if we understand what the word means. So the word can mean a lot of different things, and I want to use a restaurant visit as an analogy to help us understand what it means. We're staying on the food theme. We started with diet, healthy eating plans. Now we're going to the, to the restaurants because that's always a good way to stick to a good diet is to go to restaurants often. Um, so the first thing you might do if you're going to a restaurant is the word judge. The word judge means to evaluate, simply to evaluate. If I said I was going to um, uh, Maggiano's for lunch uh, then, and, I, and I said I was going to judge the restaurant, you don't necessarily make the assumption that I'm making the choice that it's a bad restaurant at the very beginning, right? I'm judging Maggiano's. I'm evaluating Maggiano's. I might give it five stars. I might give it one star. I might give it somewhere in between. There are all kinds of options, all kinds of things I could potentially do. So it's just simply evaluation. The other way the word judge could mean is, is it could imply a negative outcome. So it's an evaluation that implies a negative outcome. So that would mean I am judging Maggiano's. I'm walking in the door and I am going, I bet I'm not going to like this place. You ever been to, you ever been to someone, uh, somewhere with someone like that? I don't think I'm going to like this place. I don't think this place is good. Do you see uh, one of the, uh, I think I said this before, but one of my favorite Yogi Bearisms is, uh, uh, and I always, always mess it up and do my best, is uh, that place downtown is uh, so busy nobody wants to eat there anymore, uh, which, yeah, no, okay, that didn't land as like I thought it was. So busy, no one, okay, I'll try harder next time. Um, so, what's that? It's, yeah, that's right. So it's not supposed to be that great. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you're saying there. You're helping me out there. So, um, <laughs> back where I was. Where was I? So anyway, uh, so it can mean evaluate with assumed negative intent. 
so that, that can be the idea. I'm walking in the restaurant, I'm walking into the, walking into the place, and I'm already making a decision about what it is. The third thing is, is it could imply negative intentions, that I'm assuming that there's negative intentions. I'm not only, emo- uh, I'm not only um, weighing the, 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 the quality of the food or that it's negative. Let me, let, let me, I, got, I threw myself way off on that, so let me come back to one. So one of them could be I'm just evaluating whether the food's very good or not, right? Is it good or is it bad? Is it negative or is it positive? And I don't think the word judge here would mean that it's wrong to evaluate. Is it wrong to evaluate? Is it negative or positive? Because aren't we called to assess and evaluate things in the world? Is something righteous? Is it not righteous? Is something good or is it not bad? It's okay for us as believers to go to a restaurant and say that was a good restaurant or a bad restaurant. It's okay for us as believers to look in our own lives and go, this action is a wrong action. This action is a good action. We, don't, we wouldn't believe that that's what it says because the Bible actually tells us to test all things, right? To test everything, to understand what is the right way to do things and the wrong things to do things. Uh, it even says that um, um, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable, which implies that there are some decisions that are wise and some things that aren't wise. We're commanded, we're instructed to evaluate whether something's helpful. James will go on to tell us that when a brother confesses his sin to us, actually turn there real quick, if, since you've got your Bibles to James, James chapter 5. Verse 19 says, uh, we've read this text a lot here at Restoration Church. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns, uh, turns him back, he should know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his life from a death and a multitude of sins. Basically, when you look at this text real deeply, you understand that it's saying, when you see someone that believes the wrong thing and is living out in the wrong way based on what they believe, it is our responsibility as believers to help them turn from their error. So we are to be in a position where we see someone doing something that the Bible calls sin, calls wrong, calls evil, that we help them discover that. Not in a spirit of of condemnation, not in a spirit of of you're crazy, but in a a spirit of we love you. We want to help you be rescued from, uh, from the thing that's destroying your life. So I don't think it would be evaluating whether something's good or bad. I don't think that could be here. But I do want the context to determine what it means. So the other thing that it could mean was, is, and this is what I was going to, what I was getting to a minute ago, the third thing is, is the intentions of one's heart. So if I went and sat down to the, sat down to the meal, and this is where judgment often is most likely used um, in the Bible to say, do not judge. And it's something along these lines. So if I sat down to the meal, and I started to eat the meal, and I went, this is horrible. I bet that chef is a no good, sorry, I bet he's, I bet he's lazy, I bet he didn't even go to school. I, I have done what? I have stopped judging the food, and I've started judging the, the person, the motives, who he is. I have judged who he is by what he does. And the Bible oftentimes speaks to why that's a dangerous position for believers to be in. Because we, we can't see the heart. Who's the only person who can see the heart? God is the only person to see the heart. So I should never allow myself to be in a position to judge who someone is, what they think, what they believe, who they are on the inside by what they do. That's a dangerous position to put ourselves in. And when we do that, we're putting ourselves in the position of God. There is a fourth way that the word judgment can mean. I, I, I'll pause and say, let me, let me say, I don't think it's referring to that, that place here, though. Um, because as we look at the context and look how everything wraps out, I think it's assuming the condemnation uh, that that kind of judgment would give. Because... If we ultimately judge something or someone as being evil, why, is that, why would that even be valuable? I'll tell you why it's not valuable. Because the Bible says we are condemned already. Like I don't have to make a judgment about whether you are good or bad. I don't have to make a judgment about whether you're sinful or righteousness or righteous. I don't have to make that judgment about myself either. 
Because that judgment has already been placed on me. I have revealed that judgment in my behavior. It has not been placed on me because of my behavior. I am already condemned. There is nobody who's good. There's none righteous. No, not one. Right? That judgment is unnecessary because it's already been placed. It's not very helpful, um, at least as it, as it applies to this text. It's a helpful judgment in certain contexts, of course. But I don't believe that's what it's referring to here. The fourth thing is, or the, the last way we would look at the word judgment is a comparative. What is better, A or B? So if I were sitting in front of um, uh, Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi, I would judge that Diet Coke is delicious and Diet Pepsi tastes like soap. Um, if I was sitting in front of uh, two football teams, Auburn or Alabama, it would be easy for me to tell you that Auburn is the better football team than Alabama. If I were sitting in front of um, uh, Duke and North Carolina basketball, I would never tell this group what I decided because there are too many people on either <laughs> side of that equation. But it's, that's what this word judgment means. Which is better, A or B? I believe that's what's going on here uh, because what he's teaching us to do is to not say that we are better than someone else. And I'll show you why I think that. But we'll come back to that in a minute. I think they'll all be clear as we keep going. So those are the different ways judgment can be used. We are commanded and called to evaluate, to evaluate if one thing is wrong or if one thing is right. The Bible is very clear that everybody is condemned, that all of us are in a position of need and desperation of the gospel. But this passage is not speaking to any of those things. It's speaking to the reality that we have a tendency to say we are better than someone else. Now let's trace the logic of this text just a little bit. The logic of this text says, as we said earlier, that if you're being critical or condemning or bad-mouthing another brother or someone in your community, then the reason why is because you're being judgmental in your heart. It's because you think you're better than they are in your heart. And if you're doing that, why are you doing so? It's because you are being critical and judgmental. You think you are better than the law. You think you are above the law. You think your law, your idea of what is right and wrong, and this is key, is better than their idea of what is right and wrong. You think you are good enough to determine who's good enough. Does that make sense? So that's why it says to us that we should not be in a position to badmouth our brother. Because we badmouth our brother, it means that we're trying to say we're better than they are. And if we say we're better than they are, we're saying that our idea of goodness and righteousness and morality is better than God's idea of righteousness, goodness, and morality. Now that's a problem. That's a problem because God's idea of righteousness and morality is a, is a, is a standard that is too far above us to be reached. It is an infinite standard. Bible says everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That basically means God's glory and God's greatness and God's goodness is so, so big and so grand and so infinite that every one of us, in comparison to God, falls short. And the law referred to here is a reflection of God's glory, of God's standard, His holiness. What James is telling us is simply this. That when you judge someone else and say that you're better than them, you are revealing that you don't understand the law, that the law says you are not good in the first place. That not only do they not score well on the test, you don't score well on the test either. You are the person who are, you are the person who has failed trying to help the other person who has failed find success. You are, the, you are the person who's not very good at singing, helping the person who is, good, who is also maybe not good at singing, sing well. You don't know how to play the guitar, but you're trying to help someone else who doesn't know how to play the guitar, play the guitar. Because the law says we are all, we are, we've all failed. None of us meet the standard of being as good as God, and that puts us all on the even playing field. 
When it comes to the Christian life, we might would say it this way, uh, that, that we're all, we are all dependent upon the grace of Jesus. Our input does not equal God's output. That's the way the world works, right? Uh, what we do, we get what we earn. We do a good job, we get a good recompense. It's the way the whole world around us works. What the Bible teaches us is that based on God's law, none, none of us do a good enough input, good enough works, good enough actions, good enough righteousness to get something from God, to deserve something from God. And when we are judging someone else, when we're saying we're better than someone else, the reason we're doing that is because we think we can be better than someone else. I see a lot of looks. How's everybody tracking so far? Okay? All right. So we'll keep going, and maybe if uh, you're still trying to put it all together, we can definitely uh, unravel it more in the discussion. So when it comes to Christian life, what this teaches us is uh, that if the, Christian life were, um, if the Christian life were cooking Thanksgiving dinner, we burn the turkey and the stuffing, right? If the Christian life were a baseball game, we went 0 for 5 with 5 strikeouts and 4 errors. If the Christian life were a date, we, like I did when I first took Kiersey out on a date, walked close, slowly and quietly to the front door, reached down to grab our girlfriend's hand, leaned in for a kiss, and let out a little toot. It did happen. It, it may or may not have happened. I'm not going to say. So that's how good we are at the Christian life, right? Uh, it is true. In a matter of, it, it did happen. Uh, not exactly that way, but it did happen. Sorry, it did. Can we strike that from Facebook Live? Is that Facebook Live editable? Uh, no? Okay, all right, never mind. Um, so just, it did happen, but that's okay. That's how good I am at life, and that's how good we all are at the Christian life, right? So the gospel tells us there's hope in that, but we'll come to that in a minute. That's how good we are. We've all failed the test. The law is a test, and it says they were all zeros. We all stink. So if we're all zeros, if we're bankrupt, if, we're, if our checkbook is in the negative, what position are we in to say that we're better than someone else? Or that they're not good enough? We're not good enough to say that they're not good enough. We have been all set aside as those who fail the test. Now, the good news is in the gospel is that when we burn the turkey dinner, spiritually, in the analogy, the Christian life, where us burning, we're, we're Thanksgiving dinner, and we, we burn the turkey and we burn the dressing, we have a chef who comes in, a five-star master chef who comes in and says, don't worry, I'll fix this for you. They come in with a perfectly prepared Thanksgiving dinner to, to replace the mess we made. If the Christian life were a baseball game, we have the greatest Babe Ruth, basically, of, of the spiritual world, even better, to come in and pinch hint for us and say, don't worry, I've got this. Here, let me hit for you. If the Christian life were walking our girlfriend to the door, uh, we can sneak out. You shut your eyes, sneak out and let Brad Pitt take her place, you know, in the... That got a little awkward probably more than I expected. But we, but we have one who will replace us. That even though we can't pass the test, even though we failed the test, even though we are at the bottom as well, we have one who will replace us. That is the hope of the gospel. And when we believe that, when we really believe that our input does not equal God's output, it puts us in a position where we stop assessing whether we're better or worse than other people or whether they're better or worse than we are because we know we're all worse. And that the only one who's good is Jesus. He's the only one who's our hope. 
His gift of graciousness, His willingness to save us and forgive us is not based on what we do, but what He's done for us. How well we prepare Thanksgiving, how well we batter, how romantic we are, or in the real world, how righteous we are. It's Jesus who has replaced us. And He gives it to us freely. He gives us that grace freely. And James is saying that when you understand that, you are now no longer in a position of being critical and judgmental of the law, and you are free to treat others with love and grace. Think about how that might affect how you talk about people. If I think of you as the same as me, not, not worse than me, if I never think of anyone in this room or anyone at work or anyone in my family or anyone that's driving a car in front of me, if I never think that they're worse than me, that we're the same, it changes how I communicate with you. It changes how I talk. It changes how I love. Think about how that might apply. That's what James's big point is. But think about how that might apply to forgiveness as well. Think about how it might apply to your relationships in your, in your um, marriage, in your family, your parental relationships. Now, we struggle with this, right? We struggle with thinking that the outcome of our lives, the outcome of our spiritual journey is based on what we do. Now, we know it. Everybody in here knows that. But we have a hard time. We struggle with living that out of really believing it. Let me walk you through an exercise that may help you uncover how you're doing on this. It did for me anyway. So I want you to imagine for a second the person in the world that you think, that you know, make it somebody you know, probably be best, that needs to experience the transforming power of God in their life the most. I want you to give a second, I want you to think about this person. This is kind of weird to do in church. I don't want you to be judgmental. But, uh, but think about the person who, you need, who needs the most transforming power of Jesus in their life. Now, I'm not going to tell you the person I'm thinking of, but I want to describe them to you. Uh, the person I'm thinking of um, is somebody that was very close to, uh, married to someone that was very close to our family. Um, and this person uh, was, uh, v- during that entire time, very mean and very nasty to the person they were married to. So much so that even though in my theology, um, I don't believe there's any reason for divorce ever, um, I, I was kind of feeling pretty good when they decided to divorce this person. This person was nasty. When my family was around this person, uh, it, was, it, was, it was miserable. They were mean to us. They were mean to my children. They were mean to my wife. Um, they were mean to me. Uh, they were mean. They were just mean people. They were, they, this person now is living off the state, um, sits in a trailer all day long, um, snorting coke, living off of your taxes, my taxes. I pay for them to sit in their, their trailer and snort coke. I do. All day. And when they're not living off the state, they're living off the handouts of others. Um, person we've prayed for, I've prayed for a whole lot in my life. Needs the transforming power of God, right? So that's the person I have in my mind. I have somebody in my mind. I don't know who you would have. Hopefully that will help you have somebody in your mind as well. The question I have for you is you think you should have the blessings in favor of God more than that person does. What about the prayer you've been praying? The prayer that you've been praying for years Do you believe that you deserve for your prayer to be answered more than their prayer? Do you, do you, how would you feel if you got a text that that person just won $10 million the day after you found out that you were terminally ill? That exercise helped me reveal on the inside that I still am addicted to believing that God's favor and God's blessing is for performance. 
The problem with the law is, the thing I don't like about it, is it says I'm in the same position as the person I described. And when I know that, it will transform how I speak to that person, how I talk, how I think of that person. When it comes to forgiveness, if I am just as guilty, 100% as guilty as a person that I need to forgive, just as guilty, then it's pretty easy to understand that the gospel would say to me, take the step that forgive. But no, 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 you don't understand what they did. I don't have to. You don't have to. The law says that you're on the same playing field. You're just as guilty as they are. So take the first step in forgiveness because you're just as guilty. Think about how that might relate to us serving other people. If you were, if you had... $10 million, or let's just imagine two, two people in a scenario. One person has $10 million and one person that's dirt poor. What would it look like for you to help that poor person or that $10 million person, millionaire, multimillionaire, to serve that other person? They might give them some money, right? They might give them some financial advice, probably so. That's what that service relationship would look like. But what if you're both poor? What if you're both bankrupt, both hungry? Now what does that relationship look like? Now it's not me helping, giving, giving service and help to you. It's giving help and living out help with you. So now we're going to get bread together, right? Now we're on the same playing field. Now we're in a relationship. Now in, in the real world, the first description is a pretty good place to be, right? We want to be able to give and serve and help. But in the spiritual world, we're all bankrupt. And this puts us in a position not to show how we're better and try to prove we're better and try to because we're all zeros. We've all failed. Good news is it doesn't matter because Jesus rescues us from our failure. But the reality is, is in that position, we are now placed not above anyone, but beside them. And that's the call of the gospel. It's how we are challenged and transformed when we believe that we are all on an even playing field. doesn't matter if you've been church 100 years, one month, or you hate the church. And you rail against it. doesn't matter if you believe in my political agenda or you are very violently against it. doesn't matter if you're for my candidate or against my candidate doesn't matter if you are uh, of the type of person that I would want my kids to hang out with or not. We are all on the same playing field. Which leaves us in a position to get into the dirt, get into the worst, worst parts of life with each other, to love and to serve and to show the gospel. You see, the test determines the treatment. And if the test is my test, you might not be good enough, you might be good enough, I get to choose. But I don't get to choose the test. God chose the test. And God's test says that I'm a sinner. My only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is a full hope. And that I can share that hope with the world. The test determines the treatment. And the treatment that we share with others is a reflection of how we believe the gospel. Let's pray.